I remember just thinking, um, I don't want to live anymore. When I was like, you know, 17, 18 is when I first started drinking. I remember I told my mom and dad for the last time, like, hey, I need help and I actually mean it this time. That's for those of you listening, whether you're a resident in the program, whether you're a family member, a current or a future supporter. But life today is good. When I was seeing it work in other people as well as myself, something just changed. I've got a little over five years of sobriety. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Hope Dealers Podcast. Here we are. It is episode 10. I cannot believe we are already here at episode 10. It is so amazing. And because of that fact, I just want to start this episode off by thanking you, the listeners. Without you, this whole thing is not possible. So thank you so much for continuing to tune in each week to hear stories about radical life change. It's seriously, uh, we can't do it without you. I'll just double down on that. <laughs> so today, um, it is just me, your host, Sean Fitzpatrick. Going to be running solo here on episode 10. And uh, really, I, today I'm just going to share with you a little bit about the origins of the Hope Dealers podcast and how we were able to get this thing off the ground. And then I will uh, be sharing my story with all of you. Um, I know I've kind of jumped into bits and pieces of it um, throughout these last nine episodes with uh, our wonderful guest, but today uh, I figured I would just, you know, share my story with you guys. So in regards to how we decided to start this podcast, it's actually a pretty funny story. So as I've said a few times on here, I was actually, um, I've been on staff for a little over three years. Um, So that started in October of 2019. And as Everyone knows in March of 2020, um, the pandemic hit and went wild on us. And one of the first things that, you know, Lance Lang and uh, our media team realized at the time was that everything really went digital. Um, (laughs) Everything we had planned to do, events, you know, all that kind of stuff, it really just started going digital. That was the only way to do it because everybody was staying home. So, the team that I was a part of and still am the media and marketing team just got really busy with, you know, we had to pretty much put everything to video and start putting everything on Facebook, Instagram, just anything that we could. And I remember one morning sitting in my kitchen working and Lance texted us and he said, you know, I really want y'all to just kind of dig deep and and think about some new ideas. This is a great opportunity to think about some new stuff that we can do. Um, So I called him later that day and I said, you know, what about a podcast? You know, I think Hope is Alive should have a podcast. Um, And again, this is in March of 2020. And I remember Lance saying like, yeah, you know, we've we've talked about that for years. We just haven't done it. So um, we we started talking about it more and more. And what came out of that was uh, what some of you might know as was called the Hopecast, something that we did about, I want to say seven or eight episodes of. um, And it was hosted by our founders, Lance and Allison Lang. And I'll tell you, friends, it was so funny trying to get equipment for that podcast because it was, again, during the COVID lockdown. And I remember like just scrounging up anything in our office that I could find, like microphones, soundboards. But there was all these cords I was missing. There was mic stands that I was missing. And I remember I like during the day, a lot of those days I would spend like two hours outside of a Best Buy or a guitar center just standing in line (laughs) because they were only letting in three people at a time. Um, 
and just pretty much going in there and just, you know, praying that they had the, the piece of equipment that I needed. <laughs> and that was really how that first podcast was born. Um, out of, you know, a necessity because it was a very tough time. And as we all know, during the pandemic, addiction went through the roof. Um, there was, in, and we felt that it was a great time to be telling some good stories. And so fast forward a little bit, you know, the end of 2020 comes around, we have all gotten extremely busy and uh, we just don't, we're, not, we're just not really sure that we're going to have time to do the podcast anymore. Um, and so we kind of just put it on hold and said, okay, well, we, we'll get back to it at some point. And, you know, more and more time passes before you know it, it's 2022. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Hope is Alive is thriving everything's going great. Um, but in the back of my mind, I kept thinking like, man, I really want to get back to doing a podcast somehow. Um, and so what happened was, you know, a big part of my job as a media and marketing coordinator is to travel around to the outside markets. Right. And I go out and I'll, and I'll capture content and, uh, you know, get good pictures and good stories and stuff for social media, for our website, for newsletters, anything like that. But, on top of, you know, more than all of that, a big thing that I get to do is I get to meet the other residents in these outside markets. Cause you know, my, I, myself, I live in Oklahoma city, so I don't see, uh, you know, I don't get to know the outside market residents as much as some others do. So that's always the funnest part is, you know, just meeting these guys, especially the brand new ones who come in who, you know, who have just gotten here and, you know, are pretty fresh and raw to the thing. And so one day, it was in the summertime. I was out in Dallas. Yeah, Dallas. And um, I was just kind of taking some pictures at the home and meeting some of the guys. And I come across a resident named Trevor. Um, now, for those of you listening who are a part of our Dallas market, you'll know that Trevor is now the program manager out there. So obviously, uh, you know, congratulations to him. We love Trevor. But you know, my first meeting was tr with Trevor was I went outside on the uh, patio of the Dallas home and I said, uh, you know, hey, man, do you mind if I just record this on my phone? I just I just kind of want to hear your story. I really didn't know what I'd planned to do with the story um, until later. <laughs> but, I, you know, I just had it in my head that I wanted to meet this guy, hear his story. And I figured I would just record it on my phone. Um, and so he sat and told me his incredible story. And I don't want to spoil it because I know that we're going to have Trevor on the podcast here pretty soon. And you'll all get to hear it from him then. But when I got back to the city, I showed it to Lance and uh, Chris Vasquez, our creative director. And uh, I said, man, this is just really cool. Like, we got to find something to do with this. And both of them just said, well, that's the podcast. There it is. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. You know, we, we just got to find someone to host it. <laughs> and and then they, they both just said, no, 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 no. You host it. Why don't you host it? Just own it, man. And that was really how the Hope Dealers podcast was born. Um, and that was, I want to say, around August. And the next thing I know, I was, uh, you know, getting the mics ready, getting some new equipment in here and calling in guests. And here we have it, the Hope Dealers podcast. And so there you have it, you know, uh, the Hope Dealers podcast was really uh, two plus years in the making. And uh, as I said at the beginning, we're just uh, so blessed to get to do this every week. And uh, once again, thank you so much to you, the listeners, for uh, tuning in each week and uh, sharing this with those who need to hear it. So my story, how did I get here? 
You know, I was born in Rockwall, Texas, which is a little suburb outside of Dallas. Um, wonderful parents, wonderful family. I have a younger brother. His name is Keelan. Um, to this day, he's still my best friend. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I've said this a lot on here. My childhood was great, and you don't have to have a rough childhood to uh, to end up where a lot of us do. And, you know, I played sports growing up. I, I went to, you know, family gatherings. It was a very, very normal suburban childhood. Went to a good school, had lots of friends, um, nothing too crazy there. But it was when I was 14 that everything really changed. Um, there was, a, I had a couple friends in the, in the neighborhood that I grew up in. They lived right down the street. I had known them since I was about five years old. And when we were about, you know, 13, 14 years old, they started smoking marijuana. And I had known these guys all my life. Um, and so I just kind of started smoking marijuana with them for no other reason than they were doing it. And I enjoyed hanging out with them. And right then, I'll just say, that's how fast it can happen. That is really how fast it can happen, just depending on who you're hanging out with, where you're at, what situation you're in, and you just kind of start smoking some pot. And it's funny because my parents were always so, you know, they were, they were very quick to tell me to stay away from that kind of stuff because of what it can lead to. And I remember always thinking like, okay, you guys are being ridiculous. You know, it's just pot. Who cares? It's just marijuana. Um, but the fact is, is by the time I was 16, I'm not proud to say, but I had tried every drug under the sun, all of them. Um, and by that point, I had pretty much told myself that, well, I'm just going to get this out of the way now. And by the time I graduate high school and get to college, I'll have all of it out of the way. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll be ahead of the curve on that. So, you know, when I get to college, I won't want to party as much as everybody else is. And of course, you know, that's not what happened, but we'll get there in a minute. You know, another part that I want to touch on in my early teen years was I got, I started working when I was 16. And by the time I was 17, I'd gotten myself a job at a restaurant and uh, started hanging out with another crowd there that was, you know, they were older. Um, they were out of school and they all made lots of money, you know, waiting tables and bartending. And they would always invite me to come hang out with them and they would drink a lot and uh, also do drugs. And again, I can't say this enough, you know, I had wonderful parents, I had a great home. Um, it was almost the fact, it was almost like I resented how much my family cared about me because these guys that I was hanging out with and working with, they didn't, you know, have people breathing down their necks telling them what they could and couldn't do. And that's all I wanted was just freedom. I just wanted it to be like that. And the fact is, guys, is I wasn't a very good student in school. I didn't try. I never really applied myself. So by the time, you know, I'm a junior in high school, my grades are dropping. And so I think there's a little part of me that is starting to look at this whole restaurant scene and bar scene and seeing how much money people are making. And I'm like, well, this might be my future. Maybe I can just do this. These guys seem happy enough. They got wads of cash and pretty nice cars and you know, they're always having fun, you know, that could be me. What's so wrong with that? <laughs> um, 
And so by the time I was a senior in high school, I was bartending and all I really cared about was going to work, going out drinking, partying, doing drugs. And I was starting to kind of lose a lot of stuff in my life. The relationship with my parents was kind of headed downhill because they just didn't know what to say or do with me anymore. They had said it all. They had, they had punished me. They had, you know, had these long talks with me. They'd done everything they could. And I just didn't care. I just wanted, all I'm doing is counting down the days till I'm done with school so I can move out on my own and I can live my life the way I want to live it. And so I didn't end up graduating high school. I did not get to walk with my graduating class. And it was heartbreaking from uh, my family, especially my, my father, my mother. And I just kind of wanted, I just kind of pretended like it didn't matter. You know, if I ignore it, then it's not real, right? I'm sure a lot of us out there can, uh, can relate to that. And so I move in with a couple friends, a couple bartending friends, and I'm having a blast, you know, uh, sleep all day, work at night, party all night, and just do it all again the next day. Until finally, on my 19th birthday, I am heavily intoxicated on multiple substances, and I hit a parked car in a neighborhood trying to drive home. And I got arrested, and I spent my 19th birthday in jail. Now, for a lot of you parents out there listening, you might be thinking, well, okay, there's the wake-up call. There's the wake-up call. Now, now this is serious. Now he gets it. No, I was not ready. I just thought, well, I shouldn't have drove last night. That's all that I could tell myself. Well, I probably shouldn't have drove last night. That's all I got out of it. I was 19 years old now. I'd already gone to jail. This was, you know, I'm not, I'm treating this like, well, just kind of bad luck, you know, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. And so my solution is, okay, I'm going to change things up and I'm going to move to Austin, Texas. I had a handful of friends that had moved there after high school to go to UT, to go to college. And so I figured I would join them down there and, and that would change everything. Now, again, I still haven't even gotten a high school diploma at this point. And my plan is to go down to Austin, get a job bartending, and I'll figure it out there on my own. So needless to say, my parents were very concerned, but at this point they, you know, okay, fine, go do it. Give it a shot. You know, we, we can't control you forever. So I head down to Austin and, uh, you know, that whole year was, you know, it was really rough because I was seeing friends of mine that I'd grown up with around there. They're down there accomplishing things. Sure. They went out and had fun and stuff. But at the end of the day, they're getting up and going to class in the morning. They're working on bachelor's degrees. And I'm just, the only thing I can get excited about is how many, you know, how much money I made working at the bar the night before. I ended up spending a lot of the money I got on drugs and alcohol, um, as we do. And my roommate several times uh, threatened to kick me out because I was always short on rent. I was always late. And... When the year was up, when the lease was up, I left. I ran back home. This was starting to become a pattern, as you can see, that every time something went wrong, I would just run. You know, I would just leave and, and go somewhere else. But as we know, friends, um, 
yeah, you can run away, but you're still going to be there when you, when you show up, <laughs> you can't get away from you. So I got back home and continued to bartend. I moved in with a couple friends and I got a girlfriend and the, my girlfriend had a, uh, had a son, a two year old. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is it. This is what's going to save me. This girl and her son, this will force me to kind of go into, you know, adult mode and get my, get my life together. And that didn't happen, of course, because I continued to just drink every day, party every night and showed no ambition or, you know, anything for the future. And after about a year dealing with that, you know, she uh, broke up with me and left and that was it. And so I decided that I would go on a bender to kind of numb the pain. And I ended up getting my first DUI and going back to jail again. And so this time I am like, okay, the first thing in my, my head is where can I move now? <laughs> and so my mom, God bless her, ends up pulling a few strings and gets me a job with this minor league hockey team in McKinney, Texas. Um, Allen, Texas, pardon me. And uh, this is great. This was the first time I was really introduced to the media field. And a lot of what I learned at this job is what I do today for Hope is Alive. But as fun as the job was, you know, hockey is my favorite sport. For those of you who haven't heard me talk about that, um, as fun as the job was and as much as I loved it, um, I loved drinking more. And so I kept the job for about two years until finally they just laid me off and uh, basically because they couldn't count on me because I always came in, you know, reeking of alcohol and uh, I, I wasn't very reliable. I was always running my mouth. Um, and so I lost that job. And now I'm thinking, okay, like I really just can't catch a break. I'm really not willing at any point in any of this to take a step back and say, what's the common denominator here? Every time something bad goes wrong in my life, what is it? What's, what's always there? And then I hear, I can, I'm sure you guys at home are saying it's the alcohol, it's the substance, it's the drugs. But I just really thought that, you know, quite honestly, that God had it out for me. So I end up, you know, in the two years that I had worked for this hockey team, I had made a lot of friends and, uh, you know, some of them were pretty good contacts. One of them ends up hiring me on as a salesman for a company that he managed called Pure Water Technology. And we were based out of Irving, Texas. And so I ended up moving out to Fort Worth to be a, essentially like a water machine salesman. And, you know, guys, this was just another, Fort Worth was an hour plus away. So that was wonderful. I wasn't going to have to face all these people anymore. The ones that I had just wronged and <laughs> the ones who had just fired me and were just tired of me. I, I could run, I could, I could run away again. And again, when I got there to Fort Worth to that horrible little apartment I lived in, I was still there. I was still there. And so the next year working that job, 
was rough. I, I, I didn't really try at it. I didn't uh, really want to try at it. I spent every day just drinking, 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 trying to numb out the fact that I had, I was now 24 years old and I had no idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I really didn't. That was starting to really come to fruition. My family would ask me, what are you going to do with your life? What do you want to do? I have no idea. And so after about a year, it's, you can guess, <laughs> I got laid off again. Um, I, I wasn't performing well. I wasn't doing my job and uh, they couldn't rely on me. They knew that I was just out, you know, drinking and hanging out all day. And so I lose my job. There's at this point, there's no reason to stay in Fort Worth. So I moved back to Rockwall to go stay with my dad. And I decide that, well, after three years, you got to remember by this point, I've been out of the bartending business for three years and that's my solution. I'll go back to what I know. I'll go back and bartend, but it's not going to be forever. This is just going to be temporary just to get some cash in my pocket. And so I got a job in town, started bartending, started hanging out with the new crew. And next thing I know, I'm 25 and I'm right back to where I was at 19, bartending all night, sleeping all day, party, 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 drink, drink, drink. The next three years were, were really rough, guys. I, everything around me just started to collapse. I, I couldn't take care of myself. I could barely afford to pay, you know, bills at where I lived. I ended up living in about six different homes over those next few years because people would get so frustrated with me um, and kick me out of their house, their apartment, or wherever I was staying. I went to jail about five more times. And here's the thing. I went to jail about five more times. And four of those times wasn't even for, you know, I didn't get busted drinking or for possession or anything. They were traffic tickets that I wouldn't pay <laughs> because paying that would mean I would lose my money that I spent on drugs and alcohol. So I kept getting picked up for bench warrants that I had because I couldn't pay a speeding ticket or I couldn't pay, you know, for my taillight being out. It was just stuff like that. And so then I get a, another DUI at age 27. And instead of doing probation, I decide to go sit in jail for 30 days. And I went and sat in jail for 30 days. And the whole time I was in there, I was, this was the downest I had ever really been. And I remember talking on the phone in there one night with my dad and him saying, look, when you get out of there, why don't you just move up to Ada, Oklahoma with me? By this time, by this time, my dad had relocated to Ada, Oklahoma. And... I, I just say, okay, maybe that's a good idea. And we have a whole plan, you know, we'll get you, you can live here for free with me, get a part-time job just to have a little money in your pocket and try to get your GED and go back to school. And that all sounded great. Well, my dad hadn't really been around me in a few years and he didn't, he wasn't really aware of the, uh, I mean, he knew things weren't great, but he wasn't aware of the turn my life had taken and where my substance abuse, like where that was really at. And so I, uh, I get to Ada and I'll just skip to this part. Within about 30 days of being there, I got, I checked into treatment. 
once my dad, my my aunt, my cousins who live there, once they all took a look one look at me, they were like, "Oh my goodness." So I went to treatment. I was there for about 7 days and got, you know, detoxed and cleaned up and came out and I stayed clean for about 3 weeks until I relapsed and uh started drinking again. And the reason was because I did not think that I had a problem. You know who had the problem? Everybody else around me. That's what I thought. I'll go in and I'll get cleaned up just to show them that they have the problem, not me. My friends, I had the problem. And the next year from the age of 28 to 29 was by far the worst year of my life. I remember on my 29th birthday, things had gotten so bad between my father and I. On my birthday, he didn't even say anything to me. And I remember not even being upset about it because I couldn't blame him. I was going nowhere fast. I was waking up every single morning and drinking just to stave off the shakes, just to keep myself sane. I had only lived in this town for a year and I had already alienated pretty much everybody that I had met in that year. It was happening faster and faster. You see, every time I ran away, I was still there when I got there. And every time I got there, I would push away everybody. And then I would run to the next place. Guys, I was out of places to run. I did not have anywhere else to go. This was supposed to be the place where I turned it all around. And I remember each day that I would get up and drink my few shots of whiskey and I would say, you know, in my head I remember thinking, this can't go on for much longer. I'm probably pretty close to the end right now. This is probably the end of my life. Because there doesn't seem to be anywhere else to go but down at this point. Well, things took a turn for the worst. My body finally started to shut down and it, it just couldn't handle it anymore. It couldn't handle the, all the alcohol that I was pumping into myself all day, every day. And I called my aunt one morning at about six o'clock in the morning and I said, I can't move. I can't get out of bed. I, I, I don't, something's wrong. So they get me to the emergency room. The doctor comes in, puts me on an IV just to get me hydrated. Takes one look at, you know, the scans and, and everything and my blood work and rushes me to the intensive care unit. On the way to the intensive care unit, he's very quick to tell me that if I had gotten there about an hour later, I would have, I would have been dead. I would have passed away. I had no potassium in my body. My hands were seized up. I was severely dehydrated. It was a very, very, very bad time. My mother had to rush in from Missouri to come see me. My brother had to come in. My other aunts had to come in. And the thing about it, guys, is I still wasn't sure if I was the problem. And I remember after going through three horrible nights of withdrawals, waking up in the middle of the night, not knowing my name, not knowing where I was, a doctor came in and sat next to me and he said, you know, 
let's not kid each other here. You're an alcoholic and a drug addict. You're 29. You're not going to see 30 at this point. And I'll tell you what, I'll get you better and on your way so you can leave here. But I don't think you really want to stop. But if you do want to stop and you do want to get better, I'll come back in a little bit and we can talk. (laughs) And that hit me like a ton of bricks. This was a guy outside the family. This was somebody who didn't know me. This was a medical doctor basically just telling me like, well, you've got about a year left at your at your rate. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you want to hear. And that was the biggest thing. And then later that day, and while I was laying in the ICU, my mom came in and talked to me. My mom and I have always been very, very close, as you all heard me talk about on the holiday special. And my mom tells me in so many words that if this is going to continue to be my life and my choice, that when I pass away at a very young age, she was not going to feel any guilt over this. She had done everything she could. I laid in bed that night and I remember praying to God. And for the first time, it wasn't my normal prayer that I would make in jail or wherever else, the whole get me out of this and I swear I'll never do this again type thing. (laughs) This time it was just me saying, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. So a couple days later, I'm released from the intensive care unit and sent home. Of course, the family is still very, very, you know, upset at the whole situation. But more than that, the fear is they don't know what to do with me at this point. Because what are they going to do? You know, just, what, help me get an apartment, send me back to live with my mom, send me to live with my dad? That None of that has worked. <laughs> because everywhere I go, I keep showing up. <laughs> and my aunt comes in and she had some information that I had no idea at the time was about to change the rest of my life. She came in and she said, have you guys heard about hope is alive? I said, no. And my mom asked me, she said, would you be interested in doing a sober living? Guys, this is, this was the God moment for me was I said, yes, I am. The thing was, is I was ready to stop, but I really didn't know how. And so right then in that moment, without even thinking, I said, yes, I will try sober living because clearly my way is not working. I want to get better, but I don't know what to do. And that was God working in me, friends. So the next thing I know, um, we're looking at the Hope is Alive website and we're, I'm filling out an application, we're on the phone, and that leads me to where I am today, guys. Today I am the son that my parents deserve. Today I'm the brother that my brother deserves. Today I do have my GED. That was something that was made possible by the leadership and the mentors that I had here at Hope is Alive. I've got a wonderful career. I've got a wonderful life. All because I decided to say yes where I would have normally said no. 
And today, friends, life is great. I wake up every day so excited for whatever God's going to be putting on my plate. And I know that whatever comes my way, when the bad days still come, even when the good days still come, I know that God's got this. Thank you so much for listening with us today, guys. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my story with you. If you're new to the Hope Dealers podcast, be sure to subscribe. Share this with the friends of yours, those who need to hear it. We will see you again next week. This is the Hope Dealers podcast. A new place, a new home for a while. Let me feel alive. Nothing to hold me back. Take my time. Just enjoy the ride. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hope Dealers Podcast. If you or someone you know needs to get in touch with Hope is Alive, or maybe you just want some more information, please visit hopeisalive.net or call 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. I feel, I feel, I feel.